Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Zamprin. Is Hamilton going to pull an about face on the Greenbelt Facilitator? Hamilton Out of the Cold celebrates 25 years. The Westdale turns back the clock. The Ticats look for a big W. Trans-Siberian Orchestra helps the CHML Children's Fund. And is the truth really out there? The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Last night, another public meeting. This one, however, did go according to plan. There was no pushing and shoving or ultra aggressive behavior. Nothing had to be canceled. No umbrellas were seized. No, the latest public meeting on Hamilton's green belt is now being housed uh, or is now being uh, perhaps flipped on its side after that meeting. Because uh, as we know, a, a few hundred people attended this meeting at the Ancaster Fairgrounds. And a bit of a bombshell was dropped by Ward 12 Councillor Craig Kassar, who said he's going to introduce a motion later on this month to have City Council revisit its decision to work with the provincial facilitator to develop the Greenbelt. There's a big question about the legitimacy of the process. There's been a very large opinion expressed from... Uh, the public, not only today, but in weeks leading up to this. And at this point, uh, I think we just need to step back, reevaluate. A lot of people came out last night, including Ancaster resident Jesse Chang. What is the right thing to do right now for these children, for my child, for my friend's children and their children after that? Good question. Ian Borsick is the interim executive director of Environment Hamilton and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Ian, good morning. How are you? Hey, Rick, how are you? I'm good. Your thoughts on what Councillor Kassar pitched last night? Um, it was a long meeting, uh, and I was really excited to hear uh, that notice of motion come forward. Um, as as I mentioned in my delegation to Council, which was a bit earlier in the evening, um, we originally recommended not to meet with the negotiator and not work with this province. We had some strong suspicions that uh, the process was going to be a farce. And uh, I think as council, uh, or at least some councillors have realized uh, since then, you know, with the Auditor General report, Integrity Commissioner report, uh, you know, Steve Clark resigning, his chief of staff resigning, um that you know it, it the the process or the the process isn't isn't one of those it's an exercise it's uh set up to bring about a predetermined conclusion and if that's the case then uh the city of hamilton shouldn't participate if that is the case and and the green belt is going to be developed at least the, the local parcels will be developed wouldn't we want the city to work with this facilitator, with the developers, with the province, to make sure at least that the projects that are going to go forward mesh with what we already have got going on here? Well, I think it's important to note that uh, this discussion of community benefits, there was no binding agreement. There was nothing actually holding these developers to account. Um, the facilitator was just there or would just be there to uh work out some sort of community benefits agreement, but there's no guarantee. So the developers could have walked away and just gone an MZO no matter what. And when that's a setup in a negotiation and that's where the stakes are, uh, there's not really a lot of incentive for the developers to actually play ball with the city in good faith. Um, and I think it's also really important to note here that there's been multiple instances of Hamiltonians, including uh, one of our city councillors, talking about, you know, making sure that this development doesn't go through. Right now, it's, uh, you know, we're getting to close to the end of 2023. Development takes a long time, especially development where there's no services, there's no infrastructure already. 
And I think, you know, looking at the the political landscape in the province of Ontario and seeing how the public has really been opposed to this. I think it's extremely possible that in 2026, we're going to have a different provincial government. They're going to reverse this decision. And uh, I think it's incredibly positive that the city of Hamilton and Hamiltonians want to disrupt and delay this development as much as possible. So then that way in 2026, the right thing can be done and these decisions can be reversed. Ian Borsick is the interim executive director of Environment Hamilton, one of the delegates last night at the Hamilton Greenbelt meeting, the latest uh, public meeting held at the Ancaster Fairgrounds. How would you describe the mood at last night's meeting? Um, I would say it was very festive. Uh, we held a rally outside uh, beforehand. Um, anyone who was there heard the uh, Doug Ford, We Won't Touch the Green Belt uh, hip hop ritmix. Um, you know, it, it's been uh, it's been a very long haul for this uh, for this movement right now in the city of Hamilton. Uh, we've been fighting against urban sprawl since, you know, last term of council and we've had successes, but I think folks are ready in Hamilton for a long fight and, you know, seeing the massive turnout last night, you know, Ancaster Fairgrounds was chosen as the venue because the previous venue was uh, filled to capacity beyond uh, what it could, what it could hold. Um, I think a lot of people were just looking for results um, and the meeting certainly went long. There was a lot of delegations. But I think, you know, ultimately for folks who showed up and folks who were watching online, that notice of motion from Councillor Kassar should really be a cause of celebration for a lot of us because this is what we asked for. Uh, we've got about 90 seconds. Number one, I definitely want a copy of that song. Uh, but number two, how do you think the province is going to respond? And and do we care? Um, I don't think we care. Uh, I think ultimately the, the province is floundering right now. Um, this is a, a pretty big scandal for them. And, you know, to be entirely honest, I'm surprised that they didn't take the 15th recommendation from the Auditor General and, and just be like that. If I, if I was a PC caucus member, I would be certainly looking at this situation and wondering why, you know, why did we lose Steve Clark as housing minister over this? Why are we tanking our approval numbers uh, just so we can give three landowners $8 billion? Um, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, it's going to certainly make uh, the, the province of Ontario and the provincial government really start to rethink this. And, and if not, well, they're going to regret that. Uh, lastly, and we only got about 40 seconds, has any other city done this in terms of saying, no, we're not going to work with the facilitator? No. So Hamilton is leading the charge on this. Uh, there's a number of municipal councillors in other municipalities uh, who have already uh, championed and, and praised uh, the actions of Hamilton. Um, but I think, you know, this isn't new. Hamilton, uh, both as a community and as a city council, have been on the bleeding edge of fighting to preserve the green belt and fighting pres to preserve farmlands. So I think it's a comfortable position for us. We can, you know, show how things are done. And I'm really excited to continue to work with folks from across the province as Environment Hamilton uh, to uh, ensure that that happens. Ian, thank you for your time. Enjoy the day and the weekend. Yeah, thank you, Rick. Ian Borsick is the Interim Executive Director of Environment Hamilton, one of the delegates, one of the many delegates, last night at a public meeting to discuss Hamilton's Green Belt development, or I guess lack thereof, if this proposal or this uh, notice of motion does indeed pass. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, from small beginnings years ago, Hamilton Out of the Cold is now marking its 25th year of meal programs and serving the community. And here to talk about it is the executive director of Hamilton Out of the Cold, Janice Ormond. Janice, good morning. How are you today? 
I'm good morning. I'm well, thanks. How are you today? I'm fantastic. 25 years. It's gone by in a flash. 25 years. It, it, it's really hard to believe. Um, it's uh, and the incredible people that we've had and that we've served. And, you know, it seems like yesterday that I started with the program and and here we are. So still in the community. I can't imagine how many thousands of people you have helped. Well, even last year, if we look at our meal numbers from November to March last year, it was over 30,000 meals. So it's very significant in the community, yes. Yeah, and that speaks to the need in this community, which, you know, with housing crisis, the homelessness crisis, I would imagine the the need is greater than ever. We're really seeing, um, even from a few years ago, especially like everyone else, we saw the, the needs rise with COVID and um, just the numbers of people that we're seeing that we'd never seen before and having to change the, the way we served our meals. We were um, doing takeout meals, which we'd never done before. We'd always had people come sit in. And with COVID, that changed. But what we realized was we were serving so many more in the community that weren't able to come out, seniors, shut in, uh, people picking up for other families. And um, so, yeah, the need has grown significantly. And we sort of foresee that that's going to continue to rise. So, 25 years is a long time. How how did this get off the ground and, and how was it executed way back when? Well, it was started by Sister Carol Ann um, in 1997. Uh, she was Sister of St. Joseph and she had retired as a teacher and really uh, saw the need in Hamilton for people going without meals, you know, with the rising costs that happen in the in the winter months. Um, she thought, well, there's there's got to be some way to help them even supplement with a meal so that they're not worried about choosing between a meal and heat and hydro or rent. And it started with, you know, one guest the first night and um, they actually invited him to sit down and they sat down with our other volunteers and said, tell you what, bring your friends. And it just grew from there. So from one night a week and, and now we have... Uh, as of last year, we had 10 locations, so it sort of changes depending on where the need is and where we can find a site. Oh, we have um, our wonderful community of churches that open their doors and they host our, our meals and our volunteer groups go in and uh, prepare beautiful meals for, for our guests. So, Where is the greatest need right now in this community? It's, it's funny. It's throughout the community, places that we'd never thought you know, you, you kind of, there's that hidden poverty that we talk about. And so we have um, host sites or churches in downtown area. We have a couple in the mountain. We have East Stony Creek. We have water down. Um, so we're kind of, and we're always looking to see, is there a place that we're missing? And are there churches that are able to maybe open their doors and host us so that we can provide meals in other areas where people have identified those needs as well. That's very interesting because I think most people would think, you know, this is only a downtown Hamilton problem or or a north end right. or an east end problem. And those stereotypical areas have, as you just mentioned, really expanded. It, exactly. Exactly. It's it's surprising. It's it's uh, really eye opening. And even even the. Um, the piece about when you talk about COVID and it's the meal piece, but it's also that companionship piece. So people are lonely and 
just this kind of outreach and, and sharing a meal with someone is just as important for that piece as well. That's a great point because, yeah, people are hungry. People are homeless. People are looking for a warm place to be. But the mental health aspect and that mental wellness is a massive part of this, isn't it? Yes, it is. And that that's something that really came out of even a group of seniors who, when they found out about the program and they were brought meals um, because someone um, knew about them in their building and they, it was the first time they'd sat down for a meal together uh, since COVID. And it just, it did so much for their mental health. And our, they really appreciate it, as do all our guests. I'm very grateful for it. Janice Armand is the executive director of Hamilton Out of the Cold. You can see their website online at uh, hamiltonoutofthecold.ca. We have about 90 seconds. How how can Hamiltonians help you? Uh, well, they can, if they'd like to volunteer, we love to look for volunteers or especially looking for cooks. That's always a, a great challenge, getting people to cook for us. Um, they can... Um, if they'd like to donate, um, we're always looking for funding because we're self-sufficient that way. So, uh, yeah, please check us out on our website and we'll post some of our needs. And uh, and especially our guests, if you need a meal, please uh, check our website out soon because we'll, we're just um, setting up all the all the different sites that we're going to have for the season and we want to be able to provide for you. So. Amazing. Congratulations on 25 years and here's to 25 and many more. Janice, thanks for the time today. Thank you so much, Rick. I appreciate being here. Janice Ormond, Executive Director of Hamilton Out of the Cold. If you want to donate, volunteer, just check out what they're doing, hamiltonoutofthecold.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big event coming up at the Westdale Theatre. It's going to be turning back the clock with a series of showings that will feature promotional TV shows. And here to talk about it is the guy who's going to be hosting this thing, our good friend Bill Brio, television uh, television television critic, journalist, and author. Uh, Brio.tv is the website to head over to. Bill, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me. Give us all the details of what's happening at the Westdale. Well, we're throwing a TV party, and uh, I've been collecting 16-millimeter films for years and years. And you remember back in high school, some of us would have been uh, in the classroom, and they'd wheel out a projector, and they would show films on uh, big reels of film. And uh, that's what these are. These are Back in the 60s and 70s, this is how TV was circulated to all the affiliates, different stations. So I've collected these fall preview reels, and I've got a couple of them we're going to show on September 23rd and September 27th at the Westdale, which is a lovely, beautiful little neighborhood cinema. Dates back to 1935, as you know, I'm sure. Um, And yeah, we're going to be literally projecting these films in 16 right on the Westdale's big screen. Wow. So... What is a preview reel? Is this like a trailer for a TV show? Yeah, you know, we're in a funny time. Usually September meant it was exciting. You know, you'd get the fall preview issue of TV Guide. Yes. and It would be full of all the new shows that are coming and that they would, you know, there might be 30 new shows from the three networks at the time back in the 60s and 70s. Um, and so this is a reel from CBS. There's two of them I'm showing. Uh, they literally would be promoting what the new shows would be that year. And uh, the first reel, these are rare films, 1963, CBS, The Stars Address. So you'll see Lucy, uh, you'll have uh, Alfred Hitchcock, Ed Sullivan, the Beverly Hillbillies, Jack Benny, all talking about their new shows and showing clips. And then the same with the second reel is from 1972. And again, with CBS, 
And they're showing clips from all their new shows that year. And what a year they had in 72. The new shows were MASH, Maud, The Waltons, The Bob Newhart Show, the first one with wow. Emily, and uh, a little show called Bridget Loves Bernie, which no one will remember, but it's kind of an interesting story behind it. So I'll be putting the films in context and showing the reels in the theater. This is going to be a great travel back in time. And when you mentioned, you know, the fall season and the TV guide, I remember, and I think everyone did this, they would rifle through their fall guide of, you know, new shows and premieres, and you would circle it out and make sure that you put it on your calendar to, to, to remind you that, hey, you got to tune in on a, on a specific night. Yeah, you're right, Rick. And I, I started my career at TV Guide Canada and the value of that little magazine. At one time, that was the largest selling magazine in the world, was exactly what you're saying. You could buy it on Monday and then you'd, you'd know what was coming up on Friday. And, you'd, you know, it was such an older time. You were relying on that. Um, and we're in a time now where, you know, there's writers and actors strikes. So all the even the. The fact we live in a, a world now where there's new TV every week, there's streaming shows and HBO and all kinds of stuff. Back in the 60s and 70s, you really only had the these three big networks and a couple in Canada. CHCH, of course, goes mm -hmm. dates all the way back to 1954. But it was uh, very limited, the number of um, uh, you know platforms. And uh, this is showing you what it was like back then, how TV was sold back in the day when there was three networks. And Rick, remember, there was no monthly TV bills. TV was free back then. <laughs> and so these reels would just tell you what was coming up. Yeah. I uh, I mean, I, uh, you're taking me back because, uh, you know, I much preferred that time because as, as great as TV is now, and there are some amazing shows and the production values are just off the charts, not knowing or forgetting, at least in my, in, 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 in my world, Forgetting which show is on which channel or which platform or which streaming service, I I much prefer you know take me back to 1985. I rip up the TV guide and I and I know what show is on at what time on what network. Well, we all love schedules, right? And yeah. This is this is a time when you there weren't even VCRs. You couldn't. Oh, I'll you know I'll catch this. I'll just you know save it and watch it later. Right. No, if you missed it, you missed it. So you had to know what was coming on Thursdays at eight o'clock or Saturday night. And this is an era with the CBS reel for 72. Their CBS Saturday night back then was All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore, The Bob Newhart Show, hmm. The Carol Burnett Show, all on one network on one night. So that was sort of a must-see TV back then. Yeah, and the and we couldn't binge shows back in the day, right? Like now we can watch a whole season if we want in a weekend. No, if you missed it, you missed it. I mean, even way back when I was a little kid, you would wait all year for the Charlie Brown special to come on or Rudolph <laughs> yeah. or something. And if you didn't see it on December 5th, you missed it. Yeah. You know, So uh, you needed to know when things were coming on. So it's kind of a fun era. We'll see these films and I'll be putting them in context, explaining the stories behind some of them. And we've got prizes too. We're going to be doing some TV trivia questions uh, we won't have $10 million prizes like the lotto, but uh, we've we got some <laughs> cool things that are TV-related, subscriptions to streaming services and things like that. So it should be a lot of fun. And Again, the Westdale, I'm so happy to be doing this there. It's a lovely venue and uh, really, really excited to be plugging my old projector into their sound system, and you'll hear the clickety-click. And by the way, it's the 100th anniversary of 16-millimeter film, so... Wow. Kind of a neat uh, tribute all around. Absolutely. You can get your tickets online at thewestdale.ca. When does this happen? 
This starts, we're going to start the first screening will be Saturday, September 23rd at 1 p.m. These are matinees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, Wednesday, September 27th at 1 p.m., we'll show the same uh, 1962, 671 reels. And then we got two other reels coming up in October that are the late 70s. And these are ABC reels. You'll see all the uh, Gary Marshall shows, uh, Happy Days, Mork and Mindy, uh, Laverne and Shirley. They're part of that program. Well, it's going to be an awesome time at the Westdale. Bill Bria will be there. Hopefully you will too. Bill, thanks for the time today. My pleasure, Rick. Thanks a lot. Again, you can get your tickets online at thewestdale.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. After beating one of the CFL's worst teams last week in the Ottawa Red Blacks, who've now lost six in a row, the Tiger Cats will host one of the team's or one of the league's best teams tomorrow when the Winnipeg Blue Bombers waltz into town. Taylor Powell's looking that way, throws, completes it. Tim White, touchdown! Tiger Cats are back in front. RJ Brown had the call on the Ticats Audio Network and 900 CHML. And joining us now to break down tomorrow's tilt is Andy Fantuz, former star receiver with the Cats, now an analyst with the Ticats Audio Network. Andy, good morning. Welcome to the show. Rick, glad to be here. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, and I'm getting ready and looking forward to this game tomorrow afternoon. It starts at 4 o'clock. You can hear the game on the Ticats Audio Network on 900 CHML. Earlier on this morning, in my feature picks, props, and predictions, I predicted that tomorrow the Ticats would score a touchdown in the first quarter, something they haven't done since July 28th. What is up with the first quarter in this team? <laughs> yeah, well, that that would be a great uh, a great prediction to come true. It's something that's desperately needed. I, I honestly, I can't I can't put a a reason behind it. I, they they have had some decent starts offensively and um, kind of put it in the end zone right at the start of the second quarter. But for whatever reason, it just it, it, this I don't think this is I can't remember this ever happening for any team. And, and <laughs> you know, they had. 22 points, I think, in uh, all of the first quarter in, in 12 games. Um, and it's funny because it's last ridiculous. year last year they were a great first-half team and kind of weren't very good in the second half. It's, just, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is. And uh, But they, I mean, they, yeah, they got to find a way to, to, to get it started. I think last week was a better approach. It seemed like Taylor was a lot more confident in what was going to be called, and maybe they gave him a script before the game and, and let him kind of process that visually, um, like like uh, like just pot, like thinking about it in, ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And he came out loose and poised and confident. So I saw a different Taylor Powell last week than I had seen up to this point. And um, last week's game showed so much heart, in, in my opinion. It was my... My favorite game from a team perspective of the season so far might might not have been the most dominant win, but um, certainly the most gritty, the most amount of heart against a desperate Ottawa team. And so carrying some of that momentum forward will will be will be key against a Bombers team who's also coming off their most uh, impressive win of the season uh, in all three phases. Really, um, they were just lights out last week in the Banjo Bowl, and it's going to be a tough challenge. 
but yeah. it's a great opportunity. Yeah, uh, Winnipeggers destroying Saskatchewan 51-6 to last week, avenging their loss in Saskatchewan on Labor Day. And you mentioned Taylor Powell, and I'm really interested to see how he plays tomorrow and, and maybe even in the weeks to come because Matt Schiltz is back at practice, so there might be in Powell's mind a little bit more, I guess, competition or, or thought process of, hey, if I mess up, I might be on the bench or I really got to up my game. How do you think he executes and prepares for tomorrow? Yeah, it's, it, it's kind of interesting, that whole scenario, because uh, they're, I think they're expecting Bo Levi back in a few weeks as well. Um, and so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be interesting what they decide to do. I don't think there's any way they can not start Taylor after last week. Uh, let Matthew heal up a bit. And he, you know, Matt, Matthew Schultz is, is, is a great teammate. He's not, he, he seems like a really, or he is a really genuine person and, and a friend and leader and, and teammate. So I think that it'll be great to have Matthew there and working with him for a full week of practice where last week they would have only had one practice together because when he was on the sixth game, he's not allowed to practice with the team. So coming off the Labor Day, they only had one practice. So really, he didn't have much input on the field uh, with Matthew Schultz. So now I think that's going to be helpful. And, and for Taylor in this game, I think it's key to, to continue to let him play to play loose, let him take some shots downfield, throw up some of those 50-50 balls, be able to move around, scramble, and still throw it downfield. Um, Winnipeg, I mean, uh, yeah, Winnipeg's got a great de- defensive line, but so, so did Ottawa. Mm-hmm. And he was able to kind of maneuver the pocket really well while still keeping his eyes downfield and making some plays. So if he can continue that, uh, that progress, I mean, that was, that was incredible to watch. And, you know, he was my player of the game last week. Yeah, he played a phenomenal game. And hopefully once again tomorrow afternoon against the Bombers. Andy, appreciate your time. Good luck with uh, the pregame and the halftime and the postgame tomorrow. Thanks, Rick. See you there. Well, I'll be listening on the Ticats Audio Network and 900 CHML. Kickoff is at 4 after the game. Stick around for the fifth quarter brought to you by Eastgate Ford as I will be hosting another, I'm sure, barn burner of a show, taking your calls, your tweets, your emails, your uh, everything else under the sun in terms of contacting me and uh, voicing your thoughts on another big game. And this is the start of a big stretch for the Cats because not only are they hosting Winnipeg, they also play Toronto, Calgary, Saskatchewan, BC, Montreal to end the season. That is a gauntlet. All but one of those teams is over 500. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Oh, that sounds amazing. The world famous Trans-Siberian Orchestra bringing its 2023 TSO tour, The Ghosts of Christmas Eve, the best of TSO and more to Toronto's Scotiabank Arena on December the 3rd. And tickets... Go on sale today at 10 this morning. Specialty price, $39 tickets being offered for one week or while supplies last. And my guess is those supplies ain't going to last very long. Plus, $1 from every ticket is going to go to the CHML Children's Fund. It is a win, win, win. Here to talk about it is an original member and the drummer for Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Jeff Plate. Jeff, good morning. How are you? I'm doing great, Rick. Thank you. How jacked are you for the ghosts of Christmas Eve? Always. Every year. I, I've been here from the very first note. We've been doing these tours now for, well, this will be 25 years, wow. uh, aside from 2020, but we won't count that. But, uh, no, every, every year we get ready for these tours is equally exciting. It's, it's just amazing that 
that this project that Paul O'Neill started way back in the early 90s has, you know, done what it's done over all these years. It seems to be getting bigger and better all the time. How did you get involved? I ended up joining a band called Sabotage in 1994. Sabotage was a progressive rock metal band out of the Tampa, Florida area. And Paul O'Neill at the time was managing this band. He was one of the one of the writers and the producer for the group. So Paul had been working with this group early on, and he had some ideas of creating this super group, you know, this all-encompassing band that could cover all musical genres and storytelling and, you know, you name it. So in 1995, we did a record called Dead, Winter, Dead, which was a concept record about the war going on in Bosnia at the time. And Paul had this idea of inserting this instrumental Christmas song into this concept. And lo and behold, that was Christmas Eve, Sarajevo 1224. That album was released in 1995, and that song in particular just took off in a completely different direction, became a huge hit, and this became the vehicle for Paul to create the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And lo and behold, here we are, 1996, we did our first record called Christmas Eve and Other Stories, and you know, coming up down 30 years, I've been working for Paul and this group of people, and it's just amazing what's what's developed over that time. Absolutely. The new tour is called a 2023 TSO Tour, The Ghosts of Christmas Eve, The Best of TSO, and more. It's going to rock Scotiabank Arena on December the 3rd. Get your tickets as they come down at 10 a.m. this morning online at trans-siberian.com. I've been told that this is, and I know your shows are huge, but this one in particular is larger than ever. So what are you adding into it? Every year there is something different. I mean, we've, we are performing the Ghost of Christmas Eve, as you mentioned, and we've done this show before. But for people that have seen TSO a number of times, you know that every year our show is different. We, we add different songs to the show. We add different production elements. And this is where the management team and the, and the production staff really comes into play because these guys come up with something, something very clever, something very new, something visually is like, wow, we hadn't seen that before. And this, you know, this was a standard that Paul set years ago. He, he did not want to come out and perform the same show year after year after year. So, so regardless of the story that we're doing, we always change up the front half of the show with new music. We always change up the back half of the show with, with with new songs and just mixing up some of the old classics and fan favorites and that kind of thing. So every year it is a different show. But Ghost of Christmas Eve, this is one of the one of the fan favorites. It's, it's a band favorite. We all love playing the show. There's such a great energy to it, and and it'll be nice to get back to Toronto. We have not played there, and man, it's been at least five or six years, I believe. So. It'll be, it'll be good to see the fans again. We've got another minute with Jeff Plate, the drummer and original member of Trans-Siberian Orchestra. They're playing Toronto Scotiabank Arena December 3rd. The Ghosts of Christmas Eve, the best of TSO and more. Get your tickets starting at 10 this morning. Specially priced $39 tickets being offered for a week or while supplies last online at trans-siberian.com. Uh, $1 from every ticket sold is going to go to the CHML Children's Fund. And I know you have... Uh, contributed and helped to charities uh, pretty much since the beginning. Why has that been an important component of your tour? This was something that Paul instituted from the very first ticket we sold back in 1999. And, you know, Paul felt that this was just a, a way of saying thanks to the community and the cities that, that invited us in to do what we do. 
And also, it's it's a very good pay forward situation. You know, everybody in the arena, everybody in the theater, whatever whatever venue it is, is involved in the charity and helping somebody in their community, possibly helping somebody that they might even know. So to date, we've donated over eighteen million dollars across North America, all different kinds of charities. You know, the one you mentioned, children's hospitals, blood banks, food banks, zoos, everything in between. So. We have done a lot to help a lot of people, and even though that you know we lost Paul several years ago, his family. You know, one of the first things they said was the charity stays. This is something that we're all very, very proud of, and we're we're helping a lot of people along the way here. So it's a great number. I mean, by the end of this tour, it's going to be close to twenty million. And, and that's something that everybody involved is very, very proud of. That is incredible, and it's a great legacy for Paul and from everyone that is associated with Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Jeff, thanks for the time. Good luck with this tour, and we can't wait for December 3rd in Toronto. Awesome. Take care. We'll see you soon. You got it. Jeff Plate, drummer, original member, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Get your tickets starting at 10 this morning. They're specially priced at 39 bucks. For the next week, or while supplies last, trans-siberian.com. There's going to be 104 concerts, 62 cities, 46 days, an unbelievable tour coming up. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. NASA yesterday, for the first time, tried to explain what UFOs, or UAPs, what we're calling them these days, unidentified anomalous phenomena are. Releasing a 33-page report that details some evidence behind UAP that could not be explained. The top takeaway from the study is that there is a lot more to learn. The NASA independent study team did not find any evidence that UAP have an extraterrestrial origin. All right, so some interesting stuff from NASA Administrator Bill Nelson and the team. Paul Delaney is a professor emeritus in the Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University and joins us now on GMH. Paul, good morning. Paul, do we have you? Yes, you do. Hey, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. So, <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. This NASA report says unidentified anomalous phenomena, UAP, are not definitively connected to extraterrestrial life, but what they actually are remains unclear. Is that the most interesting tidbit of info from this report? It arguably is, and it really shouldn't be a surprise to people. Uh, over the last sort of 80 years or thereabouts, UFOs, UAPs, have become part of our uh, background culture. There's always been this low level of what is out there. And people associate that with extraterrestrials when they shouldn't. Uh, UAPs are exactly as they sound, unidentified. We haven't collected enough information to be able to definitively tell you what they are. The vast majority of UAP reports are in fact identified. They, they We figure out exactly what they are. But we need more information to figure out what those last few percent are. And that's really what uh, Nelson was indicating. More information to give us greater insight and greater understanding. Did anything else you heard in yesterday's announcement stick out to you as interesting or positive or negative? I think the positive is we are trying to take away the stigma of making a report about a UAP. Uh, I think for the longest time, Whenever anybody says, oh, I saw a UFO, there's sort of you know, chuckles, a few guffaws and so on and so forth. Uh, that doesn't help us in trying to identify what the objects were. So sending a more positive message that 
credible observers should deliver good insights, good information about observations. That's really, really important for us to be able to get to the bottom of these things. Do you get the sense that NASA is actively trying to find out at least more than ever what these UAP are? Or, you know, as they come, they'll kind of try and figure it out. I think there is a sea change, if I can use that term. I think there is more effort now from NASA and other organizations to get to the bottom of it. Uh, as, as Nelson indicated, no evidence that these UAPs are of an extraterrestrial origin. And I think that's a very important statement to underscore. Just because we can't identify it doesn't necessarily mean it's not of a human origin. And I've often commented that it's highly likely that these few percentage of UAP reports that uh, you know we just can't identify are likely of a military origin. And the last people who are going to tell you what they are are the military, <laughs> not just the US military, but for militaries all around the planet. So again, don't immediately jump to extraterrestrial as the origin of these UAPs. He hasn't ruled it out, but the important point here is that it is more likely of a terrestrial origin. We just haven't figured out what that origin is yet. Are there governments, or even the U.S. government in this case, kind of pushing back at NASA to say, hey, I mean, listen, don't, we have stuff in the air. We don't want you to figure out what it is. I'm sure that message is being relayed to them. Oh, I have no doubt. But now we're walking the fine line, yeah. the fine balance. There are a lot of people out there who want to know what they are, both within uh, government ranks who don't have, if you will, the necessary security uh, clearance, as well as you, know, you and me. We want to know what they are. But there are pockets of all governments that are far more clandestine. And uh, to experiment with aerial activities, shall I say, uh, is just par for the course. So, uh, yeah, there is this balance going on between government transparency and the need for government security and secrecy, I'm afraid. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus in the Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. We're talking about the NASA report into UAP, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, or UFOs, if you want to go that way. What do you think are the next step? And, and do you think NASA goes beyond North America to figure out what is in our atmosphere? Or are they just concentrating on what's happening in Canada and the U.S.? There is certainly the capability from NASA's perspective to be far more global in its reach. Let's face it, its assets are in Earth orbit. They've got a bird's eye view of the entire planet. So I don't think they will be limiting their activities to just North America. Uh, however, that said, you've got to be a little bit careful. Uh, obviously, there are various countries that will take a very dim view of NASA scrutinizing airspaces that don't belong to them. So again, we, we've got this dilemma here on the planetary surface. We have these artificial boundaries called countries, but when you are up in Earth orbit, you can't see those boundaries. You know where they are technically, but you can't see them. So I think NASA will be making uh, good efforts to give insight on a planet-wide basis, but they will be handicapped by uh, politics and international activities. It's a pretty cool report, and obviously uh, whenever we're talking about UAP or UFOs, obviously the, the global fascination takes over. Paul, we'll have to leave it there. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for waking up with us. Not a problem, Rick. Cheers. Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus in the Faculty of Science, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. Check out the 
whole NASA story in the report online at globalnews.ca 900chml.com. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900chml and online at 900chml.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.